soccer somewhere in the backyard. Uh, when I was growing up, we played kickball because in West Virginia, the yards are pretty small. There's mountains everywhere. And so playing kickball, you could, you could do that very easily. And we did the same thing that, that you probably remember growing up. The, the game would start. You'd get a group of, of, uh, of neighborhood kids or otherwise together, and, and you would begin by picking captains, right? There would be two that would, that would divide up, the two teams, and one captain would stand on this side and one would, would, would stand over here, and then they would choose their team from, from, the, from the group. And, and if you weren't the captain, which I never was, the main goal was not to be the last man standing, right? That meant that you were no good, that nobody wanted you on, on their team. And some of you still might be traumatized by your childhood of being that guy, always that guy or that gal that never got picked. Now, I wasn't that guy. I was the friend of that guy, usually the second to the last. Uh, yeah, you did. But you, you, you can't blame the captain. Whenever you think about that, you think, oh, that's how unfair. I mean, you know, we live in this snowflake world where there's no competition and everybody gets a participation trophy. That's ridiculous. But you can't blame the captain. What was his goal? His goal is to pick the best possible players out of the group that he had in order to, to win the game. I mean, if, you're, if, you're not, if your goal is not to win the game, then, then what's the purpose of, of, of playing it? I mean, you do the same thing if you're if you own a company or you're uh, a boss somewhere, you're and you have to hire employees. The goal doesn't change. You're looking for the most qualified individual to to fill the position that you have available. And the more important the task, the more vital it is to pick the best person that has the greatest skill level to fulfill whatever that whatever that task is. Well, there's, there's no task more vital than the preaching of the gospel, and there's no entity more important than the, than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, when Jesus chooses the men for His team, if you will, He chooses the most unlikely and unqualified individuals that you could think of. It's like He makes His entire team made up of, of those guys, the ones that are, that are left over. Of the twelve apostles, seven were fishermen or farmers, one was a revolutionary, one was a tax collector working for the Romans, two we don't even know enough about to say what they did, one was an unrelated conspirator that betrayed Christ, and Jesus even knew he was going to do that before he chose him. I mean... None of the men that, that we, we heard read this morning that we're going to look at in, in Mark chapter 3 were, were renowned. None of them were scholars. None of them were highly educated. None of them had a track record uh, of being an, an, an orator. None of them had the inside track on, on uh, uh, the rabbinical priesthood. They were common, unlikely outsiders of the of the religious system and they didn't even have any particular talents as far as related to ministry beyond that we know from the gospels that they didn't get much better after they were chosen did they (laughs) 
Jesus continually rebukes the disciples for lacking faith. Oh, ye of little faith, did I not say to you we were going to the other side? They're prone to mistakes. They're prone to misunderstandings. When Jesus does finally put them in the ministry and they feel the sting of rebuke of a, of a specific village, what did, what did they say? Uh, would you like us to call fire down out of heaven and, and fry them like bacon right here, Lord? I mean, didn't even get the, the ministry that, that, that they were called to. They had bad attitudes. They, they struggled to get the message of, of Christ. He, he, he uh, heals a man in stages. Well, the only time that Jesus does that where, where he, uh, he, he puts the, the spittle on a man's eyes and asks him what he sees and then ultimately tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam to reveal how the disciples were slow to understand in stages who Jesus was and what he, what he came to do. They were slow learners. They were spiritually dense. Even up to the, to, to the last few weeks of Christ's ministry, they're arguing about who's going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Two of them even have their mommy go to Jesus to try to secure a position in the kingdom. And beyond that, they didn't even volunteer for the job. Jesus chooses them to be the twelve disciples. They're minding their own business, fishing, and He calls them to be disciples, and it says they leave all and follow Him. But Mark chapter 3 says that that out of that group of disciples, he chooses 12 that are going to be his men that would carry on the ministry after he leaves. And I think it's the opposite. When, when you put it in that context, it's the opposite of what we're tempted to think about when we think about the apostles or the disciples or we think about the apostle Paul, right? We get this idea, well, that's, that's Paul or that's Peter. Well, maybe not Peter because he's always sticking his foot in his mouth. But we think that they're super Christians. If you go to many churches, you'll see stained glass windows of the, of the apostles that, that, that present them as if somehow they're just below Christ. We think that they were the best and the brightest that the world had to offer, and Jesus just comes along and plucks the fruit of the world. But nothing could be further from the truth. They were not super Christians. They were not even the cream of the crop among the men that were available in Galilee. They weren't the highest. They weren't the noblest. They weren't the best. They weren't the most gifted, humanly speaking. And yet Jesus selects these men. And are you ready for this? There is no plan B. These are the guys. You're here today because of those 11 and then a 12th one that comes along after Judas falls out and betrays. And the two things that distinguish these men, the only two things, is that they were very common, they were very ordinary people, and they were chosen by Christ to be His disciples. Those are the only two. I mean, you can't point to any other thing in all of the Gospels or all of the Bible that that says, okay, right there, that's why Jesus chose Peter, or that's why this one was amongst the twelve. I mean, really, when it, it seems crazy whenever you think about it. Jesus could not have chosen twelve more religiously unqualified and unlikely men to launch the church, but, but that's exactly what He does because the achievement, as we said last week, in God's economy is not based on our abilities, it's based on His. And He chooses these men, I think, to teach us that God uses ordinary people to do His extraordinary work. Aren't you thankful for that? I am.
Well, open your Bibles, if you're not there, to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And we've already read the text, verses 13 through 19. I'll include verse 20 in the unpardonable sin passage that's, that's coming. If you've ever wondered what that is, hold on, it's coming. But after Jesus disperses the crowd, this crowd of fickle followers that, that were gathered just to, to see what they could get from him, they're not there to hear, they're there to because of what he did, and they're hoping to get something from him. Mark says he chooses 12 men to preach the message that he preached and do the works that he did, and these 12 will be the apostles that will carry on the work after Christ accomplishes his, his work on the cross, his death and resurrection, and ascends into, into heaven. And right before he commissions them, he reminds them with the crowd that the power is not in the numbers or the miracles, but in God and in the message that, that they would preach. These men will become the first preachers of the new covenant. They'll lay the foundation of the church. We've taken over after the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us it's laid on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There are no apostles today because nobody in here has seen the literal risen Christ and there are no prophets today because the, the sign gift of prophecy to authenticate the message is no longer needed because we have a completed canon. We have the New Testament. So the workers in the church today are the evangelists. That's what we call a missionary evangelist that goes proclaims the gospel where it's not being proclaimed, gathers an assembly of people together, roots them in basic doctrine, and then those evangelists or missionaries hand that off to pastor teachers or elders that will then equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. God raises up more people within the church, sends them out, and equips them from within. There's an outside ministry and there's an inside ministry. There's evangelism, which we're talking about doing when Easter comes along here in the next three weeks. And there's equipping ministry, which we're doing right now as you're sitting under the Word of God. Those are the, those are the two outworkings of the church. We reach outside and we edify inside. And God has given two gifts to His church, two uh, positions, uh, two men that, that fulfill those positions. And those are the ones that go out the missionary evangelists, and those are the ones that stay in which equip the saints. And the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of the church. And upon that foundation, they had revelation. They had sign gifts. They, they saw the risen Christ. They could do things that I can't do and that you can't do. And if I did, it would probably freak you out because those sign gifts aren't around anymore today. They will lay the foundation of the church and take over after Jesus returns to the Father. But first, they must be chosen, they must be commissioned, and they must be identified. And their calling is, is what you see here in Mark chapter 3. And as I said, I think the theme is God uses ordinary people to do His extraordinary work, and He still does today. I can promise you I'm not standing here because I am part of the religious elite I mean, if you had any idea how petrified I was to speak in front of a crowd, it would blow your mind. I've shared this with you before, but I felt the feelings, the sweaty palms and the, the heart racing. And I would rather write a 10-page paper than give a 30-second speech 
The first time I ever gave a speech, I'll never forget it. It was in seventh grade, and there was a drama teacher um, who was a jerk. I still remember him. And I am scared to death. And all I had was like was like three lines, literally three three lines. And the three lines were I still remember them. Seventh grade. That's how marking of an event this was for me. Why? Why me? Why does it always have to be me? That's all I had to say. And everybody said the same thing. The entire group of people, they, you line up and you stand in the front of the stage and you say, why? Why me? Why does it always have to be me? And then you get down and you, you go. And that was the intro into seventh grade drama class. And I was petrified. So I get up and I'm scared to death and I stand there with my, with my feet together. And I have no idea why I did this, but I used a British accent whenever I did it. I don't know. I'm not kidding. I don't know whether, you know, I watched James Bond the night before, but something to take the, to take the, the, the attention off of me. Of course, it did the opposite. It put the attention right on me. And I never will forget what he said. He said, Farrell, you're standing like a girl. Girls stand with their legs together. Men stand or boys stand with their legs apart. And I'm thinking, great, not only do I look like an idiot, but I look like a girl. I was petrified to speak in front of people. And God's got a sense of humor because that's all I do. (laughs) That's all I do. And it is not because of me. I would not have chosen this for anything in the world. And yet I wouldn't forsake it for anything that the world has to offer. Christ chooses ordinary, frail, weak people to do His extraordinary work. And these twelve unlikely messengers are the same. Let me give you the outline, and then we'll walk through it. There's the choice of these men in verse 13. There's the the commissioning of them as messengers. They will be called apostles, sent ones. Verses 14 and 15. And then in verses 16 and 19, there's the actual names and includes their nicknames. Now, we're not going to get into all of their nicknames, but I'm going to show you the main point of why they're listed. There's the characteristics of these men who would become magistrates in the kingdom. There's the choice of the men, the commissioning. And the characteristics, these were average men who became apostolic messengers who would serve as alternative magistrates magistrates in the kingdom because the Jewish leaders rejected their Messiah. Let's let's look at the the choice of the of the men. Look at verse 13. It says he went up on the mountain and he called to him those who he himself desired or or wanted. And they came to him. He went up on the mountain, and he called whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, Mark doesn't tell us which mountain this is. I want to believe that it's Mount Arbel. It's the same mountain that I believe the Great Commission was given on. I can't be dogmatic about this, but it does say the mountain. Now, there's plenty of mountains in Galilee. But you know Matthew 28, after the resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples to go back to Galilee, and he'll appear to them as the risen Christ, and they obey, and Jesus takes them up onto the high mountain, and they're overlooking all of Galilee, and they're also overlooking the lands that are there, and he 
gives them that commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And I think it would make sense that he would bring them back to the same place that he first called them here and remind them that he chose them for this task before he sends them out to, to do it. But I can't say that for sure. We just know it's a mountain. But what we do know is that they were there based on Christ's choice and then the apostles' obedience. Look at verse 13 again. They went up on the mountain and he called to to him those he himself wanted or desired and they obeyed. They, they came. There are two parts there. It starts with Jesus' choice of them and it continues with their response. And Jesus didn't force them to go. But they wouldn't have gone unless he called them there, unless he chose them. Jesus specifically tells the disciples in in John fifteen sixteen, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. He'll do that in the next few verses. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And the fruit should abide, remain, so that whatever you ask in the the Father, in my name, he may give it unto you. It's very clear that these men are here because Christ chooses them as, as his apostles. And God is always the initiator. And yet, there's always a required response when God called me to follow him. He called me, but I responded. Just exactly what you see here with the, with the disciples. And God doing that, whether in service or salvation, always begins with Him, but it includes our response. And I think it's important to note that this choice has to do with out of the larger group of the disciples. I don't know what comes into your mind when you think of the disciples. When you, when you read in the Gospels, it was the disciples of Jesus. Don't think just 12 guys. Okay, there, there are three groups in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels, there's the crowd. We just saw the crowd. That's the mixed multitude. There are the disciples, which, which is hundreds of people. And then there's the disciples, or now going to be called the apostles, the twelve, that are chosen out of that, that larger, that larger group. The disciples were made up of hundreds of, hundreds of people. There were over 500 that gathered in Galilee that saw the risen Lord, according to 1 Corinthians 15. The disciples that were gathered in the room waiting after Jesus was crucified, before he appeared to them, was a large group. It included men and women. It was the women that first went to the, went to the tomb. And it says they were plural in Luke 24.1. And these twelve are called to him, the ones that he desired, and they, they came to him. I think what's significant about that is Jesus knew these men before he ever put them into service. He knew their faults. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their failures. As I said, he even knew Judas would betray him. And he knows you too. He knows you too. Whatever work it is that he's placed you in, whether it's the guy who's 
who has such a fear of man that his palms sweat, don't ever forget as you're fumbling and bumbling around trying to follow Christ and fulfill whatever ministry it is that He has given you to do, that none of your failures surprises the Lord. He knew every one of them. He's your Creator. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you can do, what you can't do. He knows knows everything about you. And He knew that before He called you. He knew all the besetting sins. He knew all the sins that you would commit after you came to Christ. And yet, He has chosen you for the task that He's given you to do, whatever that is. And that could be in marriage. That could be in being a parent. That could be in the church. That could be in your job. That could be being located right here in Lynchburg or halfway around the world. And the whole thing points back to your success and mine is not dependent on our strength but on His. And these men were known by Christ, selected out of many disciples that followed Jesus and commissioned for a specific work. They're commissioned as messengers. Look at verse 14. Then, after He calls them out of the group, and they came, then He appointed twelve that they might be with Him, and that He might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. He appoints twelve, and He names them. They're called apostles. And they're to preach what He preached, and they're to do what He did. And what they're doing, the healing of the sick and the casting out demons, is a confirmation that the message that they were preaching was the message of God. Now, the name apostle means sent ones. It's different from disciple. A disciple is a follower, is a learner. But an apostle is an emissary. It's someone who's sent, who has the authority of the one who sent them. And that's exactly what they did. They were the sent ones, the ones who would take the message of Christ and preach it and proclaim it. And these twelve are the ones sent by Jesus. And the rest of the verse describes, after he names them apostles, it describes what they will do when when he sends them. They'll be with him. So that he might send them out to preach. To preach the same message that he preached. What message did he preach? The gospel of God. Repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And do what he did. And you remember from the verse, the passage right before, what Jesus came to do was not heal the sick and cast out demons and otherwise. That was to authenticate the message because they need to believe what he preached, not crave what he could desire. It's the same thing for the apostles, the same thing for us today. Our primary task as a church is to preach the message that Christ preached and proclaim it to the world. And any power that God manifests in us in us individually or in us as the body, is to authenticate that the message that we proclaim is God's message. It's all about Him. And the demons don't submit to anybody but God. Sickness doesn't flee except by the power of God. And them being able to do what Jesus did confirmed that they were preaching the message of the Messiah. The apostles would be the preachers of the new covenant. And if they were going to be sent out to preach and to do these works, the first thing that they needed to do was to be trained. 
to be with him. That's what it says. Look at verse 14. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him. It's the first thing in the list. To walk with him, to observe him, to learn from him, to listen to him, to gain insight, to be corrected by him, to be rebuked. Oh, ye of little faith. And they do that for three years. Before God ever calls you to a work for Him, He will call you to be with Him. That's a prerequisite for ministry. Any ministry. The prerequisite is not seminary. It's not an opportunity. It's not your great abilities that you had or that I had before I came to Christ. The prerequisite for doing anything for the Lord is to spend time with Him and be with Him and learn of Him. And that's exactly what you see Jesus doing with the, with the twelve. It's to be with Christ. And they'd been with Him. So He could send them. But He sends them to do a specific work, and that's to preach. And I said that's what ministry entails. It's really retelling a message. It's not coming up with something new. It's being faithful to the faith that was once delivered, that began with Christ. It's the apostles' doctrine. That's what we preach today. The apostles' doctrine. Where did the apostles get their doctrine? They got it from Jesus Himself. And that's exactly what we proclaim today. And that requires being with Him. That requires preparation. Now, I don't know if seminaries get the idea of three years from the three years of the ministry of Christ, but... But it's a pretty good number. There is no specific number of years that you have to be trained before you you go into ministry, whether it's a pulpit ministry or whether it's a, 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 a nursing home or nursery. But I find that, that, that sometimes, and maybe even some of you, I don't know, almost seem offended when I lay out the high and holy calling of gospel ministry and emphasize the need for preparation and for training. Pastors and missionaries, people who handle the Word, need to be trained in order to handle the Word. Now, don't misunderstand that. Don't misunderstand the high and holy calling to what Jesus is doing here, or what He did with me 20-some years ago. God can use anyone, and He calls the most unqualified and unlikely people on the planet to do His work. As I said, you have to look no further than... Then me, I'm sure Jim Alley would say the same thing. I was absolutely ignorant of the Bible, nothing of a leader. But anyone that God calls must labor and learn of Him and grow in His Word for the Lord to be able to, to use them. He pours in so He can pour out. It's not an elite group that enters into whatever kind of ministry it is. It's an elite calling that demands our utmost effort. Every time I say that, I think of Oswald Chambers. My utmost for his highest. And you can be used no matter who you are, but if you're called, you will suffer, you will be tested, you must be trained and grow, and that's the pattern that you see here of the, of the apostles. Gospel ministry is, is not for the lazy or faint at heart, but even if you are that way, God calls you and He'll train you to be diligent. In fact, He may even call you into ministry in all of your weakness to bring about the very sanctification that you need. You need Sunday coming. You need the pressure 
of the of the church, of the pulpit, of what, of whatever your Sunday school class, of of your of your praise factory. Uh, you need those students knowing that those little ones are going to come in and recite a verse to you to prompt you to learn the verse yourself. The very ministry that God puts you in may be not because you're so great or so gifted, but because God wants to use your use that ministry to prepare you and to grow you your, your yourself. We have it backwards in, in the world. We, we think God calls the best and the brightest that the world has to offer, and then he just uses those abilities for himself. I, I mean, anytime you get a celebrity that comes to faith, we immediately prop them up on a stage and as if somehow that gains credibility for the gospel. There's all kinds of gospel tracks out there from Jeff Gordon to whoever else that's out there that have been divorced 33 times whenever they profess faith in Christ. And we use that somehow to give credibility to the message of Jesus. Jesus does not need our worldly credibility. Amen? But God does choose the least and the lowly and the weak. And He turns them into His messengers. And that way He gets all the glory. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 describes a divine pattern explicitly. Verse 18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. In verse 26 it says, For for consider your calling, brethren. He's talking to the church at Corinth. Consider your salvation, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful before you came to Christ. Not many were noble, of a noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are the things people that think they are. Why? So that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You have nothing to boast in your salvation. You have nothing to boast in your service other than in the Lord. And Paul lays out the preaching of the gospel uses Isaiah 29:14 that God is inter- isn't interested in using the wise and the clever he's not dependent upon them he chooses the lowest of the low the foolish he goes a step deeper he chooses the weak he goes another step the no burst or the insignificant he goes down another step the things that are not the literally the non-existent ones and as far as the world was concerned they were nobodies and we're nobodies but we preach as somebody that can transform anybody amen hallelujah And as far as the world was concerned, these twelve, are you kidding me? Uneducated, unskilled men from Galilee. And that's exactly the way that God would design it so that no one would question who that they got their power from and who to give glory to. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. The only explanation that they could give was that that they had been with Jesus. You remember that passage? That was the explanation of their power, and that's the explanation of our power today. And the contrast between 
the calling into ministry, whenever God chooses you in your ministry, whatever that is, and the lowest of the low, and then the distance between that and qualifying you for ministry is Christ preparing you in the work that he does in you while you're with him in sanctification. 1 Timothy 3, don't lay hands on a novice, a newly planted sprout. You have to be able to teach. You're to prove that in your life and in your family, but that's not how you start out. He calls the lowly and then qualifies them for whatever the work is. And all of those in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus are spiritual qualifications, fruit born from walking with Christ, not worldly wisdom or abilities. It's God's work and hard work. And the calling of the twelve was to exalt Christ. He's sending them out to do to preach what he preached and do what he did, but it's also a condemnation on the religious leaders of the day. And if you looked at that outline and said, Magistrates, what in the world? Well, yes, it's an M that goes along with the outline, but there's a point to that word. Verse 16, Mark identifies or names the, the, the apostles or the disciples. And the point when you look at that list is not one of them is from the leadership of Israel. Have you ever wondered why there are twelve? I mean, if God gets glory from having a few and it's all in him, why not three? Why not one? Why not twenty-four? Where's twelve come from? Twelve is very important. It's a specific number. It's because the choosing of the twelve was a judgment on an apostate Israel. How many tribes of Israel are there? There are twelve. In Jesus' condemnation of the religious system of his day, he does that at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. We call it the cleansing of the temple, but it's actually an attack on the religious system. He cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and at the very end of his ministry, he condemns it again. And the apostles, the choosing of the twelve, is a condemnation, a judgment on the leaders of Israel. The system, they're not from among the system. And their choice is judgment. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples when they were arguing of who's going to be great in the kingdom? Luke twenty-two twenty-eight. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and watch this, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The choosing and commissioning of the twelve was a judgment on Israel's corrupt leaders. Now you think about this. The leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had the privilege of the law and the covenants. Salvation was from the Jews, but not to remain with the Jews. They were there to be a light unto the Gentiles. They were to see the Messiah, receive the Messiah when he came, and yet they rejected the Messiah. They were already plotting to kill the Messiah. They were to usher in the kingdom and then open the door for the Gentiles. But they perverted the law and the covenants, and the truth, and they will be removed. And now the twelve will sit on twelve thrones to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. They'll replace the religious leaders 
and apostate Judaism, which rejected Christ. The choosing of the twelve is their replacement. It's a condemnation. Now, some say this passage right here that's up on the screen is evidence that the church replaces Israel, but in fact, it's actually a confirmation that God still has a plan for Israel. Look at what it says. It actually confirms that there will be a nation and a literal kingdom because twelve apostles can't sit on twelve the thrones of twelve tribes if there's no kingdom and no tribes and no Israel, right? There's a kingdom coming. And in that kingdom, there will be the identity of twelve tribes. The apostles will be the ones that are seated on the thrones judging them. And Jesus chooses twelve men who are not from that system, who are not even exalted in the world, most unlikely that you can imagine. And when he does, he rejects their system. So that the explanation for the advance of the gospel and the, the, the building of the church is Christ and Christ alone, and it hasn't changed for 2,000 years. Beware of any theology or any ministry or any church or any temptation that you have in your heart that is centered on a human being and on his abilities. Beware. It will lead you astray. As much as I would, would rather die than, than hurt you or lead you astray in any way, shape, or form, I am frail. But the Word will never fail you. And Christ will build His church. And it's the foundation that you can trust in for, for your life. And the plan that God has designed is a plan that exalts grace. It's a plan that exalts God. And it's a plan that expresses God's condemnation on a proud works or on proud works based system. In the choosing of the twelve, it exalts grace. These are sinful, frail men, and God chooses to use them. It's a plan that exalts grace. There's no explanation for what they're able to do other than His power. And it's a plan that expresses God's condemnation on a proud, works-based system that thinks that there's some other way other than the Messiah coming as a suffering servant when Jesus said, I'm the way. He's the only way. And He's the only way for you today. It's not through a system. It's not through your works. It's through God taking who you are, where you are, with all of your junk and your frailties, and you bringing it to the foot of the cross and laying it down there, believing the message that He, by His own grace, has provided for you the righteousness and the salvation that you need. And then you turn from your way, your rebellion, your life, and turn to Him. And however you say that in prayer, that's what you do in salvation. You, you, you repent and you believe. You trust. You lay your weight for the rest of your life and salvation on what Christ has done. You don't clean yourself up before you get there. He'll do that work for you. Do you know Him? He loves you. He'd love to save you. Christian, are you being used by Him? Have you believed somehow that you, that you began with the Spirit, but you're going to be made perfect in the arm of your flesh? You've grown weary? 
working in your own power rather than him, the next three weeks you have an opportunity to push the reset button and to get on board with, with an outreach that, that is the express purpose. It's an outward ministry. It's trying to reach the community with the gospel. And you'll be edified in that process. And God's calling you to do that. The, the leaders of your church, our church, is saying, this is what we're going to do, but you have to respond and obey. Will you?